0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Close Readings. I'm your host, Kamran Javadizadeh, and it is my sincere pleasure to have my friend, Walt Hunter, on the podcast today. Um, Walt is um, joining us from Cleveland, and he's he's here to talk today about the great poem, Gwendolyn Brooks, and her poem, Kitchenette Building. Um, As ever, uh, you can find a link uh, to the text of the poem. If you'd like to read along as we talk about it, you can find a link to the text of the poem in the episode notes. Um, Gwendolyn Brooks is a poet who has come up on this podcast before, though we haven't had a whole episode dedicated to her. You might remember that when I talked to Chris Spade, uh, we talked about the Terrence Hayes poem, uh, The Golden Shovel, which um, is a kind of an, an elaborate riff on uh, the, the much beloved and anthologized Brooks poem, We Real Cool. So you've even heard Gwendolyn Brooks's voice on this podcast before, if you've been listening all along. But now we got a whole episode dedicated to Brooks, and I'm so excited about it, and I'm so excited to have Walt on to do the honors. Let me tell you a little bit about Walt Hunter before um, we turn to the poem. So, Walt is an associate professor and chair of the Department of English at Case Western Reserve University. Um, And he's the author of two books of criticism. So, his first book was called Forms of a World Contemporary Poetry and the Making of Globalization. And that was published by Fordham University Press in 2019. Um, And Walt's Second book of criticism, uh, which is uh, due out this year from Oxford University Press, is called The American House Poem, uh, 1945 to 2021. And uh, though I don't know this for a fact, I didn't ask Walt about it ahead of time, I wonder if his choice of poem for today is related to that project, and maybe we'll get a preview of some of the kind of thinking um, on display in that book. Um, in our conversation today, because this is among other things an American house poem from nineteen forty five to twenty twenty one so that's that's an, it's closer to it's much closer to the front end of that um that um, historical uh period than the than the back end um, Walt is also the author of a book of poems, a book called some flowers uh, so so our our guest today is a he's a scholar of poetry, a poetry critic, an essayist, and a poet himself. Um, his book uh, of poems is called Some Flowers. That was published by Mad Hat um, in 2022. And it's it's a beautiful book. Um, I'm going to embarrass Walt in a minute by, by reading from it um, briefly. But Walt, Walt is also um, a, a translator, a translator with Lindsay Turner, his wife, um, and, a, and, a, um, and a previous guest on Close Reading. So So if you've been listening all along, you may remember... Uh, Lindsay came on the podcast to talk about the Elizabeth Bishop poem, The Shampoo, um, in an early episode of the podcast. And um, I don't play favorites, but a favorite of mine. I mean, Bishop is a favorite of mine, and so and so is Lindsay. Um, so the two of them had t- together translated um, Frédéric Nérat's Atopias, Manifesto for a Radical Existentialism. That was also published by Fordham, uh, but in 2017. So in addition to all of that, Walt edits poetry for The Atlantic, um, and you can also read um, some of his essays um, uh, in The Atlantic, Uh, but he's the author of several academic um, refereed articles as well. They've appeared in journals like New Literary History, American Literary History, Essays in Criticism, Modern Philology, um, and the ASAP Journal. Um, so we, we have a a really, um, accomplished, um, thoughtful, um, and, uh, and talented guest on the podcast today. And I'm so excited about it. Um, you know, Walt is one of those people. This is, uh, true as often as, as not, um, especially when it comes, I've found to, um, critics and scholars of, um, modern contemporary poetry, that he's a poet and a critic. That's, that's, um, that's something one finds often in the scholarly field. Um, those two sides of Walt's um, writing life um, are, in, in my way of reading, always both present. Um, wh- whichever mode he's working in, you can sort of detect the, the the ghost and the presence of the of the other Walt Hunter, um, and it makes it makes him uh, a. A kind of essayist that you can trust, and that uh, and that writes uh, with an ear for beauty, um, and it makes him a poet who has read a lot of poetry <laughs> and is thinking about it, and it's um, and is haunted by it, bothered by it, um, inspired by it in his own poems. Um, I mean, I could pick any number of examples um, to cite but I'm just going to, um, exercise some recency bias, I guess, and say how much I enjoyed Walt's recent essay in the Atlantic on, of all things, chat GPT and, um, it's difficulty or inability, um, in Walt's view in, um, in writing poetry. And I want to read just a, a, a very brief passage from the end of that essay, because I think it'll give you an idea of the kind of, um, of the kind of thinking that's on display in, in Walt's writing. So, so here he is towards the end of this essay in which he's, um, experimented with ChatGPT, asking it to write, uh, a poem in the style of Seamus Heaney, which it, it, it uh, failed to do. Um, and out of that, Walt develops a kind of account of what it is that ChatGPT is missing. Um, but ultimately I think the value of this piece and I'll link to it so you can all read it. Uh, I think the value of this piece is not, is not what it's telling us about Chat GPT, but what it's telling us about poetry and about human beings. So this, is, this now is Walt, quote, whatever upgrades might come for ChatGPT, what it writes likely won't emerge from the burning sense that something is missing from the world. Poetry speaks in the words of the dead, words sometimes borrowed from past poems but the desire to use those words comes from an intuition that something is still hidden in them, something that needs to be heard in the harmony between our present voices and those earlier ones. I think that's, I think that's beautiful and profound. Um, I think it is elegantly stated and, um, and I found myself thinking of, of many poets when I read it. One of the poets I found myself thinking of was Walt Hunter. So, so <laughs> let me now read you a, um, a poem from Walt's new book. Um, I get to still call it new, a, a book um, that came out last year. Again, the book is called Some Flowers. The poem is called The Backward Spring. And it's, it's, it's one of many poems in the book I love. This is Walt, The Backward Spring. You tried to like the sea, because we say it moves like love moves, so strange, the clouds around the moon. Then you tried to like the mountain, tearing into the moonlight when the day is gone. Like that kid in the Clare poem, bringing summer to the bored faces of the angels, dropping things behind them in the rain. We can't begin again. I wish I knew what I knew now breathless, dimensionless, limited on the macadam in sunlight. It wasn't sweeter when it ended, wasn't anything when it began. Well, I mean, we we could spend the next hour talking about this poem, but let me just say a word or two about it um, now, which is um, it has one of those qualities that I most admire in poetry, a kind of ear for idiom, for the way we all talk to each other beautifully often in just daily conversation. But it's as though that idiom has passed through a kind of lens where it suddenly becomes sort of strange off. I mean, an example might be for instance um, I wish I knew what I knew now rather than they expected. I wish I knew what I know now Um, that that play with tenses is a subtle and kind of jarring um, change that helps you th- see things differently. Um, uh, the Backward Spring, as a title, um, might call to mind a gymnastics move or, um, or a stream running in reverse. Um, and I think in, in both of those possibilities, we have a kind of implied account Of where poetry might come from. And it's consistent with that piece that Walt wrote uh, for The Atlantic on ChatGPT and poetry. That is, that there's something that the poet does um, with the language that they inherit and that they make new um, in their own hands. Um, And so I'm I'm excited to get to talk to Walt for the next hour and to talk to him about Gwendolyn Brooks. Well, Hunter, welcome to Close Readings. How are you doing today?
1: Oh, I a lot better after that lovely introduction. Thanks, Cameron. It's it's great to see you. Uh, I miss seeing you, and I'm I'm glad we can do this. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Well, it's it's my pleasure to have you on. As I said, so um, you know, you and I um, traded a few messages um, in in trying to get you onto the podcast. Um, so I guess I saw you, uh, our listeners couldn't see it happening. And I don't, I don't remember you, you saying anything when I intimated that this poem might have a role to play in your book. I take That's it right. that it does. And presumably that is at least part of what went into your thinking in, um, in choosing it for the episode. So again, for, for, for people who don't remember, don't know, uh, I, I'm not assigning the poem to the guest. I'm inviting the guest and they're choosing a poem. But well, so, maybe say a word about what led you to make this choice. Uh, sure.
1: The poem is the second poem in A Street in Bronzeville, Brooks' first uh, book. And I chose the poem because of its relation to the sonnet, which we can talk about. Yeah. But also because of the dynamism in the language of the poem. And I thought it would be a good choice for a podcast because really one of the protagonists in the poem is, is the sound of the poem as it hmm. develops, And I we can, that, that seems like a bit of an obscure way of putting it, but, um, I think it would be exciting if at some point, one of the things we could do in our conversation would be to look at the way the poem poses kind of contest between more traditionally poetic language yeah. and language that Brooks connects to the topic of the poem, the kitchenette. The kitchenette right. being, you know, uh, just for those uh, who, who are unfamiliar with the, the space of the kitchenette. Yeah, good. Uh, we should define uh, what that yeah. means. What that right. term means. Kitchenette right. Yeah, building, so, right? Yeah, so the so kitchenette. So, uh, you know, uh, an apartment carved into multiple apartments where right. five or six or seven families live, often without a shared bathroom. Um, which comes into play in the poem. Yes, um, and I know you're going to play the poem too. Uh, yeah, right. These poems, these uh, these poems, these uh, kitchenettes were originally marketed to Eastern European um, immigrant or to European immigrants too, and um, eventually then by the mid by the early mid 20th century to uh, Black families um, in cities like Chicago. Right. Uh, Richard Wright has a famous uh, chapter on the kitchenette in Twelve Million Black Voices, uh, which is is more in the style of uh, photo hmm. photorealism, and then Brooks Brooks's version, of course, uh, is a dramatic, uh, more dramatic um, uh, version uh, with speaking voices in it. Uh, so, yeah, um, you know, so uh, so Cameron, I, the, the the poem I chose for those reasons: the sound, the dynamic movement, yeah, um, the and the relation between the poem and its material circumstances too, or where yeah. people live and how they make poetry out of where they live. Uh, yeah, I think that's that's one of the themes of the poem for sure
0: right so poetry coming not just out of a i mean as i was saying in in my intro of, of you poetry coming not just out of the poet's sort of sense of all the poems they've read up to that point but also the noises they hear down the hallway and upstairs and downstairs and in their non-poetic lives as it were
1: right exactly yeah, yeah that's
0: exactly and all of that comes into this poem and is quite palpable well do you remember when you first read gwendolyn brooks and um was sort of what she meant or sort of how she came to play a role in, in your love of poetry or your, your way of thinking about poetry?
1: Like many people, I came to her through that poem. We real cool. Yeah. But, uh, but later on a street in Bronzeville and um, Annie Allen uh, became fixtures for me. However, until I was writing this book, I hadn't carefully read later poems, like In the Mecca, which I think is a brilliant yeah. masterpiece, um, also about an apartment building. Um, yeah, that's and right. And then, you know, somewhere in between those years, and so I think I discovered her in middle school in, in a classroom, honestly, uh-huh. um, and uh-huh. then, uh, you know, reading through Black's, the collection of her work, uh, I think is a, for somebody who is interested in exploring American poetry of the 20th century, it is just a fabulous introduction. I think you wonderful you know, you could do much worse than just picking up a copy of Black's. So if, if you're thinking, hey, I really want to get into poetry, American poetry. Right. Um, uh, I, I think that she doesn't quite get the kind of top billing sometimes that other poets like Plath or Lowell or, or even Bishop uh, sure. get. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, I think there's. There's just marvelous discoveries to be made in in this book, even for people who're pretty well versed uh, with her work. Maude Martha is in this book too, of course, right. the novel, which is a, a be- beautiful masterpiece. Right. Uh, so yeah, that was a long answer to your question. I well, believe okay. in middle school, and then later on, I you know found found her later work uh, more recently, I think. Um,
0: Right. Right. Okay. Okay, good. Um, so, um, so yeah, let's, let's listen to a recording of, um, of Gwendolyn Brooks reading the poem. Um, what did you say, or, or do, did, am I just, um, am I remembering something I read that this book is, uh, sorry, the poem is the second poem in the, in the book, um, A Street in Bronzeville, and um, and is there anything, um, you know, like I said, I'll, I, I, will, I will link to, um, I think, to probably to the Poetry Foundation's um, version of the poem so that people can see the text. But not everybody is going to be able to do that. Is there anything ah. you would want people to know? I mean, you know, they might be driving or whatever, right? So is there any, anything people should have in mind about what the poem looks like, um, Walt, on the page before we listen to it? basic
1: schema here would be four stanzas and then brooks has three lines in the first stanza four in the second stanza and then three lines in each of the final two stanzas so it's not going to be one uninterrupted stanza if you're if you're listening along um you'll hear the rhymes that will clue you into uh you know the line endings and you can you can try to imagine even if you're uh, even if you're driving along you can try to imagine it's split up in basically those proportions
0: and I think it's true, um, that the, that the rhymes will in each case, like, um, uh, bookend the stanzas. That's so, right. That's so, right. the, the, so when you hear a rhyme, it's as though you'll know a stanza, you've reached the end of a stanza and the next yeah. one is beginning. Um, good. So, um, all right, well, let's, let's listen to, let's listen to Brooks read. And, um, this recording is also available on the. Poetry Foundation's um, website. So if you want to listen to it um, again, um, and, not, and not be bothered by me and Walt, um, <laughs> you, you can you can also do that at your leisure. But uh, so here's Gwendolyn Brooks.
2: This is Gwendolyn Brooks, January nineteenth, nineteen 1961, reading from my own poems. From a street in Bronzeville, kitchenette building. We are things of dry hours and the involuntary plan. Grayed in and gray. Dream makes a giddy sound, not strong like rent. Feeding a wife, satisfying a man. But could a dream send up through onion fumes its white and violet? Fight with fried potatoes and yesterday's garbage ripening in the hall? Flutter or sing an aria down these rooms? Even if we were willing to let it in, had time to warm it, keep it very clean, anticipate a message, let it begin. We wonder, but not well, not for a minute. Since number five is out of the bathroom now, we think of lukewarm water, hope to get in it.
0: So that's, that's Gwendolyn Brooks reading Kitchenette Building from a street in Bronzeville, Um a street in Bronzeville. Walt published in forty-five. Have I got that right? That's right. That's so, right. So, yep. so this recording is somewhat later. Uh, she makes this recording somewhat later. Um, maybe that's interesting to to note. Maybe not. Um, uh, Walt, when you listen to Brooks read, um, what do you find yourself noticing in her voice?
1: I was struck by the last phrase and the uh, the, the characteristic. Um, brooks uh inflection that she gives to it uh I, I couldn't imitate it myself but there's something uh that snaps at the end of it which it, oh, that's but, a it, nice but it almost it. in in a in a light way in her reading of it you almost um uh, you know, we, we should talk at some point perhaps about the, the you know the content of the, of the poem oh, so yeah. so so my characterizing it as light makes makes sense yes, but um, right. there, but there's something that um she she closes off the poem with um I don't know, you almost tempted to say something like a whimsical um mm-hmm. uh there's a whimsical conclusiveness to it. I'm not sure how else to put it.
0: No, that's well, I think that's well put. And um yeah, of course we will um we will get into the, the content of the poem. But I take it that what you're suggesting is that there's something um sort of unlikely um, maybe or or um, not what a person would would immediately expect having only read it on the page about a kind of lightness of tone or um and I like that word ye is she, a sort of stamp at the end or something yeah,
1: yeah, I think the question that the poem poses is what type of poetry is appropriate. What type of sound of poetry is appropriate for a poem? Um, She says, dream, dream in quotation marks in the text. Dream makes a giddy sound, not strong. Um, And then her examples of a strong sound are rent, feeding a wife, satisfying a man. That's all in the first stanza, which lays out the problem that the poem is going to explore. And that problem is a very old uh you know it calls back a very old subgenre of poetry which is the the singing contest uh in a way there's a there's a sense that there are these two voices are two ways of casting the sound in the poem and they are at odds with each other one is the the dream or the other right. example she gives is an aria or um uh you know a, a song and then the other is uh, onion fumes fried potatoes garbage ripening um you know these words that she says have a strong sound so the 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 giddy the giddy and the strong or you know not the raw and the cooked but the giddy and the strong (laughs) are the two are the two options here um or or not two options because when the poem dallies with the idea that maybe there could be uh, an aria made out of yeah onion fumes and potatoes uh it, it it has to discard that idea because the bathroom has opened up and that's when she snaps the conclusion yeah place all right
0: there. okay so so there's so much in what you just said but um but for, the, for the benefit of our listener um i mean i i, I want to gloss one thing because and then sort of pull on the string because it, to me it's so interesting you said not the raw and the cooked um, but the, what did you say? The giddy and the... The,
1: the, the giddy and the strong.
0: The giddy uh, and the strong. Okay, so yeah. so the raw and the cooked, What, what <laughs> well, Walt might be referring to a few different things, but my guess is that what he has first of all in mind is a famous split in poetry that, that Robert Lowell um, described as what um, confronting and implied that he was trying to resolve... Um, when he accepted the National Book Award in Poetry in 1960 for his 1959 book, Life Studies. So, what Lowell meant by raw was something like the poetry of Allen Ginsberg and Howell, the sort of beat declaiming of poetry. And what, what Lowell meant by cooked was something like the poetry of Richard Wilbur, I think, this sort of tidy, well behaved, um, Elegantly rhyming, often um, poetry of mid-century, both of which left Lowell feeling disappointed ultimately, and he was wanting to kind of find some middle path between those two poles. So, the 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 um, the ones that you've identified in as in Brooks sort of in Brooks's ear here they don't map neatly onto those no, two no, no. but I was there's being something a bit, uh, yeah yeah there's something yeah. i mean what i think sorry well what i here's the question for you you know um when when lowell made that speech you know readers can come to their own might have their own ideas and surely did about like which camp lowell belonged to and which side of things life studies falls down on ultimately if it falls down on one or the other but clearly his ambition was to say was was to say there are these two ways of writing, and I'm trying to do neither and both or something, right? Um it it's it wasn't sort of um here are two sides of a debate and here's the one I prefer. It was here are two sides of a debate that don't leave where where a third option is wanted. Um and is is the form of that um tension between the two poles, even if the polls don't map neatly onto Lowell's in Brooks's ear in this poem is she wanting to to kind of uh, you, well? You choose the verb that makes the metaphor work for you. Marry them together, reconcile them with each other, or you know, avoid both. I don't know.
1: It's a very interesting question, and I think if you were to step back and say one picture of 20th century American poetry is that. In the 40s, there's a reaction to modernism's breaking of the pentameter with a doubling down on a kind of formalist verse. And Lowell starts out that way and then finds his own way to incorporate uh, a looser metrical design, starting with life studies and moving up through, especially history and notebook. If you were to replace some of that narrative with a different kind of narrative that says, on the one hand, you have the strong language which is the language associated with labor care work feminized housework in this poem raising kids living in conditions that are unpropitious for writing poetry yeah. and then on the other hand you have the giddiness of art that the 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 and i don't think giddiness should necessarily be read as as bad mm-hmm. here or as coded as mm-hmm. totally pejorative in any way i mean giddiness as um exciting ecstatic even you know in a in a brooksian way maybe yeah. uh and um uh and and if you were to think um about poetry as trying to find a marriage between the aesthetic and the material instead of between the loosely formed or the right. co and or, or the break or the broken yeah. and the and the whole yeah. or whatever however you might put it yeah then you get poetry that encompasses a lot of the poets that i think Cameron, you and I both love, um, right. including people like later, like Bernadette Mayer or, or Alice Notley or people who do write about the strong in Brooks's sense that, the, yeah. you know, the the rent, the onion foods, the fried potatoes. And Brooks is writing at this moment when, you know, I think she anticipates some of the struggles that later poets um, will try to um you know, will try to undertake, will find themselves having to undertake, which is, yeah. hey, uh, Audrey and Rich here, I'm raising three kids, I'm trying to write poetry, I must discover a new style that blends the giddy and the strong in some way, right. or, or that incorporates the two in a resonance structure, something that moves back and forth between them. Um, but, okay, to return to your question, though, yeah. I think the poem, this particular poem, at least in terms of where it ends up, ends up on the side of, of the material conditions because that's where it closes down. It says, I can't actually continue to write this poem because I need to right now get into the bath.
0: Um, but
1: (laughs) But then you might say, well, wait a minute, but that's the end of a very accomplished, poem, you know, that, that kind of represents all the possibilities for what giddiness and sound can do. Well, so that's, I, yeah.
0: yeah, sorry. No, that's one that's that. that, that is certainly um, a, a, a totally convincing um, or, or plausible um, sort of line of argument. Um, and and uh, um, a question one might interject is, well, when you say it ends up on the side of or whatever, it, it um, do you mean that? what do, what do you mean by ends up exactly like is it where yeah. is it the final line of the poem that has the last say but because another thing i'd want to say just sort of mirroring back to you something you pointed out to us a uh, um, a few minutes ago is that though though the as it were and you know the this distinction is always um a kind of facile one to make but though the the content as it were of the final line seems to be drawn to the pull of the strong as you put it or the real we might say yeah you know
1: exactly the real is a great um that, yeah. um
0: though it does that in hearing brooks read the poem her tone seemed to be pulling sort of um like helium like lifting the uh-huh. lifting uh-huh. that that the kind of ballast of that line up into the realm of the giddy or yeah. i i think of um as you were describing what giddy meant, you know, and I love that word for for Brooks. I hope we don't overdo it here, but I think it's a great one. Right, what, right. The, what that word means for for Brooks, I was thinking of a, um, you know, um, Marianne Moore's word, gusto. That poetry mm. should have gusto. It should have, mm-hmm. but it sh- it should have it for more humility, concentration, and gusto. Right? Yeah. I, I love that. I I mean, I think there's something kind of. Um, Maybe isomorphic between those um, between those divided impulses um, that that we're seeing in in the case of a few different poets here. Um, Oh, well, yeah, this or is, you know,
1: yeah, Stevens is Stevens love of the uh, you know the playfulness of language. I think Brooks shares uh, shares a lot of that. Um, and of course,
0: yeah, Stevens is another poet of uh, you know the angel of imagination and the angel right. of reality, right? Right. right, um, right. Exactly. So yeah. those mean maybe different things for Brooks. But okay, it's a very heady and interesting conversation, and I, I I'm kind of tempted just to lean fully into the poetics um, and the literary history um, kinds of angles um, that you've opened up for us, but um, I'm also wanting now to back up and and move a little more carefully through the poem. Right. Um, maybe we could just begin with the first line and a half before we get um, to the sentence with the quotation marks and the sentence that introduces the word, word giddy. So the, the, the first sentence of the poem is, we are things of dry hours and the involuntary plan, grayed in and gray. Um. Well, um, talk to us about the, the first word of the poem. We.
1: Um, we I, I who is I was that, ask you about that too. Yeah. Right. So oh, this this is very interesting. Um, you know, the poem emerges out of silence with that. Yeah. First person plural pronoun. Yeah. We are things of dry hours and the involuntary plan. Um, One thing to say at this moment would be that Brooks had come out of a period of writing uh, some drama with with a creative writing group in Chicago in the late 1930s. She had also developed her skills in the Chicago Defender at writing dramatic monologues, including one that was in the voice of an apartment house. These were published in a column called Lights and Shadows and the Defender in 1930, around, from 1935 to
0: 1938
1: or beyond. Okay. Um, or 38 is when that old apartment house poem uh, was published. And I actually begin my my book with that poem from the Chicago Defender or a nod to it because what it shows, uh, and this is why I think the we is important, is that Brooks... Is invested in a street in Bronzeville with giving us vignettes of people living around her in Chicago. She right. is living in kitchenettes. She's living. She lives in multiple kitchenettes, including ones where she hosts big parties with a hundred plus people and likes wow. views and these grand spaces. Yeah. she, she, uh, she and Henry, her husband, uh, in lived in kitchenettes after right after they were married and and and, and subsequently. Um, from those kitchenette windows she recounts how she got the material for these poems and for many of many of her poems by watching the street life and so that we as a plural pronoun here it makes some sense I think if you think about both her her interest in the collective street life developing around her the social life I mean it's a poem that is set in a in a room, but it's, it's a very socially oriented poem. It's she, she's not saying in a single voice, I am a thing of dry hours and right. the involuntary plan. It would, it would sound even, it would sound quite odd. I think to have that, hmm. you know, to have it based in that lyric, I so-called, um, uh, there. Yeah. And in part, the other kinds of art that she mentions after that line, comment, uh, uh, you know, an aria is sung by a single right. voice right and this poem wants to say can we sing an aria in this apartment this kitchenette building out of a out of a week out of a out of a sense of can
0: uh, an aria a, be a cor- cor- can it be a chorus can yeah. an aria
1: be a restative or a chorus right yeah, yeah exactly right so um yeah no that's 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 right A chorus, in particular um so, and it maintains that we too throughout to the end where it says we wonder yeah yeah um yeah
0: sorry uh I- can I, can I ask you to go back and just say a bit more when when you said, um, it, it would sound quite odd to have a, the first person singular pronoun begin the poem and the I which, you know, again, right. So for, for people who aren't, um, you know, for whom this idea might not be at their fingertips, there is this kind of long tradition taken, um, sort of interestingly historicized by many scholars of poetry, including people who've been on the podcast and uh, all kinds of directions I could point you in, but uh, this long history of the, of the I being the kind of privileged pronoun of lyric poetry of, of sort of um, short introspective consciousness reenacting poems or something. Um, so the "we" here, I think, Walt and I are both sort of noticing, is a real departure from that tradition, or a kind of modification of it, maybe. But Walt, say more about why you think it would it would have been odd had the poem begun in the singular.
1: Yeah, this is just an intuition I had, really, coming as I was reading it and re- replacing that "I" um, yeah. or substituting that "I" into the poem. But I think the title clues us to a collective. I mean, it's right. a kitchenette building. It's not a kitchenette apartment. It's not a kitchenette room. It's a, it's a, it's a, she's writing from the perspective, in a way, of, of the building, um, which she does again within the mecca, where she actually moves yeah, between yeah. all of these different rooms in the building.
0: Right. Um, well, um, yeah. If I if I could just add one thing, which just occurred to me when you said this about the title, is that you know, um, sorry. So if Not conscious, not necessarily consciously or whatever, but just if, if as though by instinct or what feels intuitively right to her at the moment, she doesn't begin with an I, but instead begins replaces it as it were with a we. And now I'm thinking about how the kitchenette building itself, Mm -hmm. in the history that you gave to us a moment ago of like what the kitchenette building was, is like. Have I got this right? Was once a like a large, and um. Single family dwelling, which was, or, or a larger apartment built, which was then subdivided, like divided um, artificially into smaller units. Um, yes,
1: as far as I know. I mean, there right, might have been yeah. different ways of doing right. it, but, uh, but that, you know, in part explains why the bathrooms are not you
0: know uh, you're not on sweet yeah yeah. Then, I gu- yeah I guess I'm just noticing um a kind of um I don't know if it's the same or is it kind of symmetrical um um play on the kind of unitary and the collective or the divided um mm-hmm. um in in the structure itself but also in the subjectivity that governs the poem as it were right
1: yeah that right. makes that makes sense,
0: yeah. So, okay. We—you've given us a lot to think about with the word "we." Now, what about the word "things"? <laughs> we are things of dry hours in the involuntary plan, grayed in and gray. I don't know. What are you, What else are you hearing in that first se- that first <laughs> sentence, which gets us, you know, to the middle of the second line?
1: Yeah, I mean things. Uh, thing things. If we press on it, I think. Opens up into a lot of questions um, that we could explore through the poem. One is the lack of freedom that involuntary also signals in the same right. line. We are I think if we read it very. If we if we push again, like I said, if we push hard on that word, um, so there is uh, also the second thing I'd say is that there's um, there's a there's a rhyme here with strong. She's yeah. just able to bounce those off each other. Um, but the third thing is Brooks has a has an extraordinary ear for a colloquial language. We know that. Um, yeah. She also uh, has uh, an extraordinary capacity for inventing um, inventing her own kinds of colloquial right. language. Um, you know, those two things are at one in Brooks. I mean, uh, and I think many have noticed that. So I think the casualness of the opening of the poem, uh, we things of... Of dry hours and the involuntary plan, grayed in and gray. Um, the first interpretation that we were we were thinking about, where freedom and agency or willpower are at stake here, um, is supported by the grammar of, of that line. We are things of dry hours and the involuntary plan. We are, as it were, we are the, the you know the the subjects of dry hours. We have no. Um, Let's see. Yeah, what the makes, what hours what makes the
0: hours dry? Why are they dry? Mm, yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, is this for, dry for, in
0: the sense of like, um, as opposed to drunk or, you know, <laughs> or, I, I, or, or you fertile? Know, I, I don't know.
1: Yeah. For me, Cameron, I think of of, of of an afternoon, of a still afternoon right. in an apartment. Um, and, and for, for, that is the semantic field that that yeah. word opens up Good. for me. I don't think that the word... I mean dry hours of course is uh, could also be um hours where nothing happens yeah um, right. Uh, right. It, it could be almost a Keatsian indolence too i mean it doesn't uh, okay. have to be purely negative um uh, uh, the the involuntary plan of course and grade and grade as it goes on, it seems much more of a yeah uh you know a progression into uh, um, into the material constraints that the rest of the poem signals um right and, right. and even you know but, but but i think with dry hours um uh, any i wouldn't call it a lazy afternoon by any means right. but that kind of sense of nothing happening, nothing um, happening. for me that's what that phrase
0: uh, stands yeah. in for yeah it does does involuntary plan refer to um like a building plan plan you or, know I, or I, to, I, yeah
1: some one of our listeners may know this it's something that i haven't been able to actually figure out there are references in the criticism to uh, uh layaway plans to exploitative um right you know exploitative types of i see. Uh, you know mortgages or, invi- or, or or simply um a kind of euphemistic way to talk about redlining or uh, other yeah, forms of right. uh, racist housing discrimination right. um uh, others opt for a more general interpretation of yeah. you know plans that we didn't get to make uh, involuntary right. uh, the involuntary plan. Um, right. I, you know, I, I'm certain that perhaps somebody that who are, who's listening to us right now might have a a, a stronger reading of involuntary um, than that. But but those are the options. I think.
0: I think you've I think you've you've nicely laid out a, an array of um, possibilities for for us to consider. Um grayed in and gray, Um, it's actually a a sort of like lovely phrasing there. Mm -hmm. The rhythm of that I find um, sort of moving. Um, Yeah, what to make of grayness here? I mean, it it brings us back to the dry hours, right? Well, let's
1: let's go to something that you just said. I mean, this is not a poem that purports to be a piece of reportage. It's not giving us a bit of journalism about what it's like to live in the kitchenette building, or at least that's not its only or primary purpose. It is, in a way, as you just pointed out, it's giving us an aesthetic sensorium that opens up from opens up in this building, even as the poem acknowledges, right, the, you know, the 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 the, the, the social. Uh, the the forms of destitution that it acknowledges are present, even as it also is keenly aware of the possibilities of the senses as they're as they're moving about in this space. Um, yeah. I don't think it's possible to make those two things to pull those two things apart in the poem, right. um, which is one of the reasons why I think people are drawn to this poem. Why right. It's such a good poem, but you're right, Grayden and Gray. Another thing I'd say there, comrade, is that you know that if, if Gray is what the we in the poem are they are great because they've been grayed in in a way. So there's something there's something there that's um about uh about appearance, about the way that people are associated with their dwelling spaces. Yeah. Um and and Brooks often returns to this theme, especially in Maud Martha, when two people leave their house and go on a date and people make assumptions about what kind of house they live in and that starts to color their perception of who they are. And and of course that's racialized and um, and in this in this poem, um, that happens in those in that brief set of four words there. The, so right. the gray becomes an aspect of the building space that attaches onto the people as a predicate, um, which I think is kind of interesting. Right,
0: right, right, right. Yeah, great in almost, it sounds to me like, um, like the we who are speaking are speaking as though they had been, they were figures who had been illustrated by some other, you know, um, by by some other designer um mm-hmm.
1: yeah and maybe that's something that the poem wants you may, you know yeah. that's I think that's really brilliant I mean maybe that's something the poem wants to fix in a way a redress
0: right, it's right right
1: sort of a grade inversion yeah. um that it's going to give a fuller um, you know color density to the white and violet that come in later and and the, and, the, and all the olfactory smells too.
0: So so then in, into the second sentence of the poem, which takes us to, to the end of the first stanza of the poem, the end of the third line of the poem, um, we get these quotations, um, these bits of overheard language. Um, so you've already told us something about, in, in setting up the poem, while you've already told us something about the, the kind of function or force of quotation for Brooks here. Um, but now that we've, now that we've reached this point, do you want to say something more about, um, dream makes a giddy sound, not strong, like rent feeding a wife, satisfying a man. So man incidentally rhymes then on the involuntary plan, <laughs> right? Satisfying yeah. a man. Um, where, where, what's your sense of like, if. If the if what the quotation marks are signaling here, if I'm right in saying is that this is overheard language that's being sort of incorporated into the poem, recorded into the poem, but but wants to be sort of cited and framed as though it were not her own words, but words she's hearing, or words that we are hearing, maybe. Um where are they being heard from, and who are the spe- who were the speakers of those quotations? Um, how do those quotations play in relation to each other?
1: It's a great question to ask of the we in the poem something like what is a dream or what are you dreaming? What are your dreams? What are your, what is the good life? What is the, what, you know, if that's what that's standing in for, in addition to the more Mm. obvious relation to the American dream or something like that, um, uh, it's, it's a very concise argument that says in a way that's an incomplete question, you know, uh, to, to ask of the, we in this poem, what, um, what uh what the good life might be is ignoring some of these uh material necessities the poem is going to set up now this isn't where the poem ends but okay. i think it poses these these two um these two poles here it sets them up in parallel with each other and sorry antithesis with each other you have the dream yeah. and then you have rent uh yeah. you know but i really think it's important with brooks to remember too that she um we shouldn't be too metaphorical about the word sound here she really means that dream has this, these sound qualities to it and rent yeah. has this other qualities to yeah. it. I think, you know, Brooks just loves, loves the capacity of the English language to have those two different sound right. qualities. So, right. I, I mean, I'm not taking away from everything that's very clearly signaled in the social, yeah. uh, and political and economic dimensions here. But since, since we're dealing with Brooks here, the consummate purveyor of sound in English, I yeah. think that it's important to also acknowledge that she's you know, that she's
0: saying that too. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Well, so, so, I mean, I, you know, I guess, I guess it occurs to me that a, a part uh, that's, that's really nicely said, but apart from sounding strong, you know, <laughs> what, what rent feeding a wife and satisfying a man have in common, maybe is um, a kind of sense of obligation right? Mm-hmm. or like a, yeah. a social obligation, right?
1: The, the involuntary so, plan. As well.
0: So, you know, rent, you you know, is is the obligation that um, um, someone who is um, whatever a, a, a leasee has to a lender, or whatever, or uh, the the person who's living in the apartment has to the landlord? Feeding a it's wife sounds like a kind of marital obligation. I mean, it sure it doesn't sa- that Say doesn't hey, sound hey, like, hey. like like love necessarily, or it's transactional. Right. Satisfying a man sounds like what, what one had better do if one is a woman, right? Right. 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 Um, and those things sounds ha- happen also to sound strong, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. If,
1: if, if, if the dream then is the capacity of art to elude those types of obligations, yeah. you know, in what way does it make its way? In what way uh, does the poem have to be written through the lens of those obligations that you said? In what way could it be written as, as, as a dream if, if it can be? Um, this is in a way, I think the, the contradiction or the contestation that the rest of the poem tries to, tries to understand.
0: It's so interesting because you might think that if you had just gotten to that point in the poem, like through three lines of the poem, and then the, mm-hmm. and then we're told the next stanza begins, but, right? Mm-hmm. You you and and then we're asked to predict where it went from that but. You you might think that what it was about to tell you, so you know, dream makes a giddy sound. It's not strong like these things, and even you might think that that what it was about to say was. But and now make a defense of dreaming, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. sort of notwithstanding, it's it's sort of insubstantial, you know, what has just been established as its kind of giddiness and unseriousness or something, you know. Mm -hmm. But that's not what happens here instead. Well, I don't know, talk. So I have a, I have a couple, I have a lots of questions, Walt, about the second stanza. So I'm just going to, um, I'm going to try to trim my list down and then let you run with it in whatever direction you want. But one question is, um, every stanza of this poem has three lines except for the second one, which has four yeah. lines. Yeah. So mm-hmm. why does the second stanza stand out in that way? Um, and then, you know, the onion fumes and the fried potatoes and all of that—that that sort of. Um, drifting up. You know, how do, do those sensory experiences sort of map on to the dichotomy that was established in the first stanza? Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe start with the, just, just by thinking of the stanza as a stanza, Walt.
1: I think this stanza is one of the great examples in English of how poetry can pack in, so many of the senses into so such a brief little room. And I think readers of Brooks have been readers of this poem by Brooks have been alert to the compact nature of this near sonnet. Yeah. As an, as a allegory for as an analog of the packed and compacted nature of the kitchenette. And so there's that sense of, is this poem trying to mirror in its, density the density of the of the building now i think there are issues right. with making too strong a claim that way but certainly it does seem as though there is a lot being contained within the, the you know this this four line stanza and i think what's being contained are the following the mm-hmm. the onion fume, the onion fumes um the white and violet two substantive adjectives there white and violet you know, it's white and violet. It, it, you know, that is a wonderful phrase there. Uh, the dreams with, white the, and the, violet. Yeah. The, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, Dream the dreams white and violet. Yeah. Um. Uh. A, a, a phrase that just sets your mind, um, really <laughs> going. Yeah. I, I don't know any. And your, your your vision. Um. The, the fried potatoes uh, echoing the onion fumes, and then the 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 garbage ripening in the hall. Right. Again, maybe a little. A bit of Keatsian uh, yeah. language there, and then, yeah. and then this, uh, and then of course the sound, uh, the the, yeah. the aria, the fluttering, that 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 sense of tactile motion there. Right. I mean, it's just a, quite extraordinary. Almost every word in this stanza appeals, solicits our our senses,
0: Yes. Uh, our, our
1: ability to imagine. I mean, yes. this is where the poem, um, and maybe that but is maybe that but. Um, is is a signal that what's going to happen is that the poem will um will like like all poetry that's based in images and in the body and in the senses, maybe the, the, the butt says, you know, you cannot keep the mind from dreaming, even in this um, poem where I'm going to pose the dream against these. Uh, these uh, these these strong uh, alternatives and and if, if you know so is is, is dreaming the so I guess okay just to pull us out to a yeah, question yeah. here is yeah, is dreaming is yeah. dreaming being redefined is the aria being, is the sauna being redefined as 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 comprising all of these uh, senses um, as well as you know other, other things we might associate with the sonnet, or with arias or with
0: dreams. it seems maybe like right so if the first stanza sets up a dichotomy between like oh the the, the sort of fanciful head in the clouds business of dreaming uh, uh, as against the you know down here on terra firma reality of mm, rent mm-hmm. and, and and marital relations or whatever mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um the the second stanza now as you describe it to me and 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 help me see what's so wonderful about it what what it's doing is sort of um following the thread of the of the real stuff of the material reality of living in this space but but describing it in such a way as to elicit and recreate its own, as it were, dreamlike quality. Like, yeah, that's you right. don't, you don't, you know, like this. It's as though the building is producing its own dreams. You know, Wait, like, so, right. So, so, yeah.
1: th- so, what would a dream as dreamed by the we in the kitchenette right. building sound smell? Uh, feel like, um, right. look like, uh, right. you know. How could what would the aria sung by the we of Dry Hours? Uh, it would right. still be, Brooke says, full. It would be replete of this copious uh, right. amount of sense. Uh, uh, you know, I, I'm almost verging on saying beauty, and maybe that's what it is. There's yeah. something that's being.
0: Well, there uh, can be all kinds of beauty, right? So, exactly. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, um, you know, I feel like we're contractually obligated as as poetry professors to to now point out that. That the word stanza yeah, um, right. has this yeah. etymological um, connection f- through Italian to the word room, right? So there's this long stand. I mean, I I, I realize that you, you are the one who should be explaining this to me because you'll do it in finer detail. <laughs> no, <not at> <laughs> but there's this um, uh, but there's this sort of long-standing kind of tradition on sort of thinking of stanzas in a poem as somehow like the rooms of a house, or like rooms in general. You were saying, I mean, in a way, Walt, I think what you were saying a moment ago about how densely packed the second stanza was, and you were suggesting that at least one possible reading there was to to read it as it were mimetically to say that it's densely packedness. Was somehow replicating or representing the densely packed nature of living in a kitchenette building.
1: Yeah, that some some readers have seen that connection. Okay. Uh, that's yeah. it, no, that's mm-hmm. fine. And yeah. I and I mm-hmm.
0: understand why one wouldn't want to like limit oneself to that kind of reading, but it's 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 plainly there, I think. Absolutely. Yes, um, agreed. But so to go back to this other kind of nagging question I had, well, why is that stanza longer than the others? Oh right, right. Um, I, I mean, well, if we were to extend the the mimetic reading thing, like you could say, well, you know, the rooms pr- presumably aren't perfectly regular, or this is a place where, and and not only is this stanza one line longer than the others, but it's the only not end-stopped stanza in the poem. Right. So it's it's like longer than the others, but it's still overflowing. As it were,
1: I, I think I think that's because, for you know, my reading of that, uh, my response to that would be this this excess fourth line is is perfectly suited to a stanza where we're trying to feed the dream into into its into its full
2: blossoming uh, as
1: a dream. So uh, you know, Brooks uh-huh. Brooks needs that extra line to yeah. give us that that dream emerging for at least the space of that extended room, and that's then, nice. And then continues with that with that excellent you know word even you know even if we were willing to let it in pushes it a little farther you know it pushes the balloon up a little bit more even if we were willing to let it in although that next stanza is quite different um, in nature I mean we've lost some of the um, concrete. Olfactory, tactile, uh, you know, sense data, as it were.
0: Yeah. So I'm Exper- just going Exper- to experience it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm sorry. going. I'm going to do the the kind of um, self indulgent thing here of, um, but but I think I think it might serve a purpose of reminding, <clears throat> of rereading the now the second and yes, third sure. stanza together because then I want you to talk to us about what what the third stanza is doing differently. Um, well, um, okay. So the second stanza remember began this way, and and I'm going to read till I get to the bottom of the third stanza. But could a dream send up through onion fumes, it's white and violet, fight with fried potatoes and yesterday's garbage ripening in the hall, flutter, or sing an aria down these rooms, even if we were willing to let it in, had time to warm it, keep it very clean, anticipate a message, let it begin? So that ends with a question mark, and the question is, but could a dream to do this stuff even if we were willing to let it in take care of it and let it begin whatever that means exactly well you were you were starting to say something a moment ago about how the third stanza is doing something in a different kind of spirit i think from from the second um and so i wonder if you might say more about the third stanza now
1: yeah uh we get hints of the prosopopeia in the third stanza, in the second stanza, by that I just mean the dream is made into uh, a human character. It's fighting, it's singing, you know. Right. Uh, and and, that, and now it, it takes on a slightly different uh, aspect. I think um, it. I I come to think that this stanza must be treating the dream as a as as another child, uh, anticipating the next oh, poem in the collection, yeah. uh, the mother. Um, and and that, that moves the poem along a little bit more because it says, oh, are we going to have to take care of this dream? Is it not just going to float, you know, through these wonderful four lines of the senses, but are we going to have to, uh, if we let it in, warm it, keep it clean, um, anticipate it. Telling us something about the future. Right? Are to we going to have our own,
0: is, is it going to put us in another relation it, it, of, of obligation? <laughs> it, it,
1: it, that's right, and I, I I do feel that that is there's a hint of that. Um, uh, let it begin. Um, or do we can we can we take on one more thing in this crowded apartment? I don't think that that's the only emotional yeah. meaning to this stanza. I don't think that's the only thing happening, but I think there is that sense of. Oh, it takes work to dream. Yeah, and we have a limited time, and we have limited capacity, and we have to take care of a lot of things. And are we also going to have to take care of of the dream? But it's still, it's still in that same sentence where the dream is developing and 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 uh, uh, growing, blossoming, whatever verb you want to yeah. use there, or, or uh, participle, yeah. um, or germ. um So yeah, I mean, anticipate a message is a curious phrase for me. Uh,
0: yeah. Well, I, I, I totally agree with you about the, um, the sense in which the dream is described as though it were, um, a, like an, um, a kind of orphan child that needed to be mm-hmm. taken in or something like that and looked after as it were. And, um, but, but it, it also sounds to me like by the time we get to that, that, um, Final line of the third stanza. Anticipate a message. Let it begin. The one that you say is um, sort of strange to you. It's strange to me too. It's it's a strange line. It it sounds like what what I'm hearing. And tell tell me if if this sounds right to you, Walt. What I'm hearing is that you know there's something like were we able to care for this orphan child that's showing up on our doorstep this that that is this dream which would require a lot of us and 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 maybe more than we can manage were we able to do that it might tell us something Mm -hmm. very important maybe i mean Mm -hmm. anticipate a message let it begin it almost sounds to me like this moment it's sort of like right on the precipice of a kind of um prophetic utterance or a you know a revelation uh, you know where you get as it were not not just the obligations or the the work of um of nurturing a dream but the kind of payoff of um of a vision or something like that
2: and yeah, it's and I it's think... sort
0: of right on the brink of that 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 that, that she's kind of funny and dis, uh, funny might be the wrong word for it but sort of briskly dismissive of that possibility
1: uh, I, yeah, I yeah. think you're right. I mean, I think it says, "Will is there a future? Is there music of the future yeah. that is coming if we yeah. let this dream begin? And yeah. the fact that it's in a question. Yeah. Okay. But it's still part of this long sentence yeah. that basically has let the dream begin. That's yeah. the thing. I mean, the po- yeah. the poem has, yeah. has performed itself, the letting in of the dream in yeah. the space of this sonnet scanty plot of ground or whatever. I mean, you have yeah. this this dream that's been let in, and it is—it's happening already, and it's happening for Brooks in her career. It's happening for poetry that's at the war. It's just you know, it's happening in Chicago in a kitchenette. You know, she's saying, "Here's poetry, uh, you know, the message. It's coming. Listen for it. You know, but let's let it begin." Um, you could read that as a, as an exhortation, uh, you know, let it begin almost, almost, I'm he, not saying you can really do it, but yeah.
0: you, you, <laughs> um, you've, you've <laughs> mentioned a couple times that the, that the poem is one line short of a, of the 14 that would be in a sonnet. And, um, I, you know, I, I don't know. I wonder like, so I'm, I'm, I hear that I'm, 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 and I think I'm persuaded by it. I I mean, I want to put out the possibility that, you know, there could be a 13 line poem that wasn't like, um, (laughs)
1: uh,
0: a a not quite sonnet, but maybe this one is, if it is, is, I don't know. I think of that line we were talking about Diane's Diane Seuss and her sonnets before we began. Mm -hmm. She, Mm -hmm. she, one of, one of the sonnets in Frank begins, um, the sonnet like poverty teaches you what you can do without, um, that there's a sense of like um with the sauna a sense of a sort of restricted form yes Uh, uh, um not enough room you know um the nun's narrow convent right Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and here it's as though that restriction is even more restricted (laughs) or something like that i mean that's how you take the 13 rather than 14 yeah i think
1: sure yeah um Where's the evidence for calling it uh, an almost sonnet? Well, I find it in the word aria because sonetto is yeah. a little song. Yeah, uh, I, I just think there's that for yeah. me that really nails it. I, I think the thirteen lines. You're right. But if I was just if, yeah. <laughs> yeah. no no, I'm but on your side, Walt. <laughs> if there wasn't already this reference to uh, to um, to forms like this. I know yeah. of course somebody's going to say, well, an artist, we're near like, yeah, of course yeah, it's right. not. But I mean, th- these references to these um, discrete forms, um, these yeah. forms that make a virtue of their constraint. Uh, but, a little song. but no, I, yeah, yeah a little song. Um, uh, but, but is it essential is another question for it to be, a a a a para, a para sonnet or a, a, i don't know what you want to call it do we have a word for a a, a
0: trump yeah. yeah well and it sounds um. it it sounds like um even apart from the the matter of 13 rather than 14 it does have something like the rhetorical shape of a sonnet too doesn't it i mean there's now I don't know if I want to call it, um, you know, Italian or Elizabethan or you know English, as it were. But it, I mean, on the one hand, it does seem like that the ending of the poem gives us something that feels witty, like like a couplet yes, in true. a in a yeah. in a sonnet. Mm-hmm. Um, and having said that, you know, I can imagine an argument that would say, like, at at some place like. Even if we were willing to let it in, or somewhere around there, we're getting something like a volta or a turn in the yeah. Petrarchan yeah. tradition. But anyway, okay, we don't yeah. want to. We don't no, need to right. press too no, hard on that. that. Um, we wonder. So the we returns. I'm now at the beginning <laughs> of the f- the fourth and final stanza. We wonder. A two word sentence. There's a kind of colloquial, yeah, sense of yeah. that, right? Uh, it, we
1: wonder. It, I, I do think. Is there something Brooks's... more
0: profound there too?
1: I don't know. Brooks yeah. is interested in dramatic, dramatic speakers and what they're going to think and say at a particular moment. I think, um, you know, many of the poems that follow are characters yeah. in particular situations, and here she's coming back to um, to this "we" and uh, wonder is a, it, it it has two purposes. One, yes, it signals that colloquialism, that interest in um invoices and i and i want to make it clear i don't mean some sort of um naturalistic colloquialism. i mean brooks's colloquial is always something that's uh you know partially uh, invented yeah Um, but but then uh, but then the second thing that wonder does is it ties together some related words in the other stanzas of the poem including dream and aria and um uh, you know message even um and uh so there's a there's a reason for wonder to appear there as a as a culminating mm. verb that pulls together some of the other right things that are almost associated with visionary experience. Yeah. Really, I mean to be honest. Um, yeah, uh, good.
0: Yeah, a, qu- a question has been asked, and I guess colloquially, we wonder is a way of sort of punting on answering it. Right, it's a way <laughs> of saying like yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> but well, we but the clock them.
1: is also ticking. Right. So, you know, we wonder, but we have to get in the bathroom. Yeah, you know? but not not for a minute. Not for a minute. So, I mean, one of the things that the poem does, which is fascinating to me, and I haven't yet figured out how to think about this really, is it really does open up a space in time where something can't really logically happen. In reality, so it's it's more about that. that. Yeah. Well, it it, 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 or maybe it can. Maybe it's just the time of waiting is actually as long as the poem has depicted it. Um, But I think uh, I think there's this sense of um, what 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 is the what is the what is the time that the poem is occurring in, and it's the time of waiting for the bathroom. And during that time, all of this is happening, and the poem is 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 opening up a space within that very you know narrow that, yeah, that narrow time yeah. that interval that um that wasted so-called time that that time of um that time of waiting that those dry minutes those uh, i don't know what to call it but there's now something i'm thinking where
0: of other poems about waiting yeah. like in, in mm-hmm. the waiting room yeah. would you know bishops exactly. would be one that's a, i think other, it's a yeah. it is
1: a poem it, it is it is a poem whose waiting is governed by the constraint of there being this shared yeah. bathroom of course you know um but uh, but but yes, that would be an interesting pairing. And, in an interesting and, and well, and
0: in this case <laughs> though, it's right waiting that's governed by the 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 kind of material reality of a shared bathroom and a kind of living arrangement that that um, um, requires its inhabitants to sort of um, manage their bodily functions, right? Yeah. Sure, and mm-hmm. and and their own their own kind of embodied, you know, if what it is like, I don't know if the we want to take a shower and hope there's a, a bit of not not even hot water, right? Lukewarm right. water right. left. Lukewarm water, mm-hmm. right? Um, since number five is out of the bathroom, number five is what presumably like the the, the inhabitant of an apartment number or something. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah.
1: that's how I read it. I mean, it, yeah. That makes the most sense, given the kitchenette building
0: and and if 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 the word "dream was introduced um early in the poem uh it seems like one might say that it's replaced by the word hope in the in the last line, but it's a more modest kind of thing right.
1: Certainly hope is part of that th- that field i i w- whether it's more modest or not i'm curious uh, I'm curious about why you why you say that i do think mm. um, you know hoping does Just have more a forward restricted momentum.
0: yeah okay ah, yeah. okay, okay yeah, good. no no yeah. go on yeah um, momentum
1: well uh, hoping does have some forward mm. momentum you hope for something you dream I of see. something but 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 you could, yeah but that dreaming of something could also be. Um, anticipating a message, there are all these. But you, you know, you put your finger on something important. I think here we're finding another verb that um, that uh, strengthens this this net of words in the poem that are starting be, are trying to are trying to pull together. This I don't know. You want to say a kind of optimism for the future or in a in a simplistic way, I guess. Yeah. Like that or, or 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 that kind of visionary visionary flavor that we get later, much later in Brooks. But when I think about that last line, too, um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, there's willing to let it in in the previous stanza. Yeah. And then there's hope to get in it. Oh, good. <laughs> and so I'm thinking, good. You know, h- hope to get in what? Hope to get in the bathroom, of course, but also hope to get in.
0: In the water, I think. yeah.
1: The, yes, yes, of course. Yes, yeah. but also hope to get in the sonnet, hope to get in yeah. the aria, hope to get in the dream, hope to get in the hope. Uh, you know, it's sort of, you know, there's this, um, there's this wonderful, um, mirroring of, uh, and reversal of syntax there that, that can't help, but you know, seduce me into thinking, um, okay, we're going to let it in, let the dream in, but then we're going to hope to get in the dream ourselves.
0: Yeah. Um, no, yeah. I, oh God, I love that. Well, and, um, I don't know if it's because I still have the kind of echo of your poem that I read, um, in, uh, earlier Today, in my mind here, but the idea of like a spring or um, a kind of source of poetic inspiration, you know, it's like the Castalian spring in in Greece or whatever, you know that, um, you know, it's the story that Byron once like leapt into it, um, as though to to like secure a kind of poetic power, but also to include himself in a kind of poetic tradition, um, maybe one thinks also of things like baptismal water, you know, or the idea of a kind of rejuvenation that happens in bathing. Um, Here, the fact that it's, that the water that's hoped for is lukewarm, that it's, that it's sort of um, communal and like municipally delivered and, um, and totally imbricated in this um, Mm -hmm. kind of racialized, um, uh, form of, um, segregation that, that, mm-hmm. that's, and, and sort of, uh, h- housing, um, injustice that's happening in Chicago and elsewhere, um, is, is, is I think not to sort of take away the possibility that what we're also talking about is like getting into a poem, <laughs> but but somehow it's as though the magic of Brooks is that it's both things at once maybe. Yes, that's right.
1: That's right. It is, it is no less a source of inspiration for all of those things that you said. And perhaps the way that the spring appears at this moment in time is as the lukewarm water. And that's, doesn't mean that it is not also, as you said, tied into uh, racist housing discrimination in Chicago. It's we're looking for where poetry appears at different points in time. We have to not look for it in you know ancient yeah. greece we might we look can't for it in the building that's
0: good <laughs> i mean just to be but
1: but, yeah. but no i think that you're right i mean we associate poetry with the breath but it's no uh, it, it, it's no um there there are also very frequent associations with water as you say yeah. and not just um in the wasteland uh different types of water oh. that serve as inspiration uh, oh. yeah
0: um, yeah, that's, yeah. Right. that's right um Wow. And transformation,
1: right? I mean, that's I, with I the think
0: baptism. I, I, maybe it's just because we're talking about we've been talking about Bishop too. I think of at the end of at the fish houses, you know, dipping right. her hand in the in the cold water there. Um, yeah. Okay, um, Walt. This was such a wonderful conversation, and um, I wonder if I could ask you to cap it off by giving us one more reading of the poem. Oh, I'd love to. Thank you so much.
1: Kitchenette building. We are things of dry hours and the involuntary plan, grayed in and gray. Dream makes a giddy sound, not strong like rent, feeding a wife, satisfying a man. But could a dream send up through onion fumes its white and violet fight with fried potatoes and yesterday's garbage ripening in the hall, flutter, sing an aria down these rooms, even if we were willing to let it in had time to warm it, keep it very clean, anticipate a message, let it begin. We wonder, but not well, not for a minute. Since number five is out of the bathroom now, we think of lukewarm water, hope to get in it.
0: So that's Walt Hunter um, reading Gwendolyn Brooks's uh, Pump Kitchenette Building. Um, well, it's been such a pleasure to get to talk with you this last hour. I'm really, um, I'm really grateful for it.
1: Thank you so much. I can't imagine somebody I, I, you know, I'd want to talk to about poems more than you, Cameron. I really appreciate the time.
0: Oh, that's very sweet of you to say. Um, Um, and of course the, that, that, that feeling is mutual. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited that we get to share this conversation with other people and, um, to those other people, thank you for listening. Thank you for participating in this series of conversations with us. Um, uh, I hope that you're enjoying the podcast so far and that you'll, um, subscribe, um, to the, um, podcast so that you get it automatically whatever service you listen um leave a rating or review um even more importantly than that um because i love the i love this feeling i'm getting that the audience for this thing is growing i hope that you'll be a part of that and pick a favorite episode maybe this one and share it with someone um you love share it with a friend um thanks for listening along with us we'll have more for you soon and until then be well everyone